Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for my friends being here today with me and, and for us to be able to come to a book that we know was written by you, inspired by you, and that we're able to read from this book, Father God, and in some amazing way, hear your voice and even think your thoughts after you. The desires, the purposes, the plans that you have for us, Father God, your promises. And I pray that as we look at this final week in 1 Peter 1, and we look at the glory that is an integral part of our joy in you, that we would see it with clarity, Father God, and that we would not only see it, but that you would commend it to our hearts, that we would embrace it with joy. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you've been with us at any point during the month of December, you know that we're in a series. We're actually wrapping it up today. Um, next week, we will begin a series in the book of John. In fact, we're going to be going through that entirety, the entirety of that book, God willing, uh, in the coming uh, weeks, months, and years. Um, but we're finishing a series up this week that we're calling The Anatomy of Joy. And um, the focus of this series, and really the focus of this season for us, has been to explore the joy of Christmas. What is the joy of Christmas? The joy that was declared to the shepherds by the angels in Luke 2. And so that's been the focus. The, the shepherds hear from the angels that there is good news of great joy, the birth of a Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is good news. In fact, this is the best news in the world. There is no other news that can be better than this. There's a Savior that has come. He's left heaven. He's come down and infiltrated our world, and he's here to rescue us. This is extraordinarily good news. And the angel says that it is good news of great joy. And I think we can read that and just assume, well, that's because it makes us happy, but not understand the connection between great joy and the news of the gospel. And that's been our, our focus this past month. In other words, when the angel said it's good news of great joy, our response to that news should not be apathy or indifference. It should not be skepticism or um, rejection. Our response to that news should be great joy. And it's the kind of joy that can't simply be held in. It's the kind of joy that, that can't be contained. It must be made public. It must become audible. It overwhelms every attempt to keep it silent, which is exactly what we see in Luke 2. So Luke 2 the angel announces good news of great joy to the shepherds. And it says in Luke 2, verses 13 and 14, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. So the angel's response to this news, this, this good news, is that a multitude of them appear in plain sight, in this spectacular display, if you can conceive of it, and they praise God. They give glory to God in the highest. Now, that alone is an amazing scene. That is an amazing scene. 
You have to think, like, what kind of event? These angels stand in the presence of God. What kind of news is this that their response is a multitude start to praise him spontaneously? But it's not just the angels. The angels aren't the only people or beings who are doing this. The angels are on one end of the spectrum, and on the other end of the spectrum, on the far end of the spectrum, are shepherds who aren't in the presence of God every day. They are tending to sheep and animals. And the shepherds, though, when they hear this news, they go and they see the child Jesus, and it says in verse 20 of the same text, and the shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And so it wasn't just the angels. The shepherds joined them. They see and hear Christ, and they join the angels in this praise of God. This is what that joy does to people. That joy causes them to, to rejoice, to worship God, to glorify God. And this is the joy of Christmas, which, if you think about it, is really the joy of a Christian at its essence, because Christmas is the advent of Christ into the world, and that's the whole reason Christianity exists in the first place. So this joy, the joy of Christmas, the joy of, of the Christian is what we've been looking at the entire, this entire month. And we've been looking at it in a passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. And now we've come all the way to the end of, of exploring the anatomy of joy in that passage. Um, and we've come to the word glory, which we'll see in just a second. What I want to do here at the end of this series is, is kind of go through real quick what we've seen so far and then point to what we're looking at just this final week. Um, so if you have your Bible, and I, I hope that you do, please grab them. Turn to 1 Peter 1. We're going to start in verse 3 and read through verse 9. And like I said, we're going to spend a few minutes just unpacking it really briefly. This is a longer part of the sermon that I had to cut, and I realized there's a lot in these last few weeks. Uh, but we'll do this really quickly, and then we'll move to glory. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 begins like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So we said this earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, Peter is painting a, a, a picture, a diagram of the Christian's joy. This is what Christian joy looks like. The same joy that we saw in Luke 2 is being expressed and illustrated here. Beginning, of course, with God's great mercy. That's how this all begins. God's great mercy creates, brings about this new birth experience for a a person, a human being, 
And that new birth experience where they become a Christian is focused and fixed on a living hope, a hope that they have in the future that is depicted here as living. It's, in fact, it's described as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And this hope has been secured for everyone who has been born again. It is their hope. And their, their whole life is fixed on that direction. And they only get this hope through an event called the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what creates this hope. That's what allows them to be born again. Peter calls this hope later on in this passage an inheritance. And uh, we sang a song actually earlier that talked about God being our inheritance, Christ being our inheritance. And Peter sees this becoming ours, this inheritance becoming our possession in its fullness when Christ returns. When Jesus comes back and he is revealed at the last time, this hope won't be something that we are leaning into, pleading with God to bring in the present, but will be ours forever. And we're anchored to this hope right now. Like as Christians, we are anchored to this hope through, the re- through a reality we call faith. Faith connects us to this hope. And Peter even says that God uses faith to guard us and protect us, keeping us tethered to this hope of a future salvation when Christ returns and we receive our inheritance. And this faith unites us to Christ and the inheritance, which he's promised to bring us, even though Peter says in the middle of this passage, in life, you're going to experience trials. They are part of life. They are, in fact, he uses the word necessary. But trials, when they collide with the life of a Christian, aren't like trials when they collide with everybody else's lives who aren't Christians. For Christians who have this hope, trials test the genuineness of their faith. That word test means to to purify, to strengthen. They make them cling to Christ harder, longer, stronger, and they keep them, it keeps them anchored to Jesus. And that faith that anchors us to Jesus, Peter says, will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when when he comes, like when he actually, and this is going to happen, like one day he's going to show up and everything's going to change. And when that happens, our faith becomes sight. Everything we've set our hopes on is there. And what we find out in this passage, what we've seen every week, is that what our inheritance is, isn't just heaven. It isn't just sinless bodies. It isn't just forgiveness. It isn't just an eternity of pleasure and joy and gladness. It isn't just not ever getting sick again. Our inheritance, the culmination of our inheritance is that we get Jesus forever. And there is no joy greater than that. There's no pleasure greater than that to be in the presence of and the embrace of the one who made us and who died for us. And what the resurrection does, what our ability to, to, what the living hope's manifestation as a resurrection does is it allows us to be in his presence forever, unbroken, unending in his presence. But then Peter, towards the end of this text, shifts back from this future salvation, which we will experience one day, and he describes the enjoyment of Jesus in the present. How people 
who've never seen him before can enjoy him right now. Last week we looked at this, uh, verses 8 and 9. Peter says, though you have not seen him, he's talking about Jesus, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So there is, at the center of our hope and our faith, a a love that we have for Jesus, even though we've never seen him before. We love him. And that love expresses itself in trusting in Jesus and in rejoicing in Jesus. It like manifests itself as a joy, just like love that you would have in your life does this. You love someone, you give them a hug. That's an expression of your joy in them. And this is the same thing. He says, even though you've never seen him with your physical eyes, this love culminates in an experience of inexpressible joy. And so he's presented, Peter's presented this tapestry, this really it's an anatomy of all the different parts of the Christian's experience of joy. And I want to pause real quick and note that at the beginning of this passage and at the end of this passage is worship. Peter begins the passage by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's worship, verse 3. And then at the very end in verse 9, he describes this experience of inexpressible joy. He sums it up by saying that we rejoice in Christ, which is also worship. So we see right from the bat, if you're looking at the text sort of closely, you see that worship has a lot to do with the joy of a Christian. They are deeply connected, which is made more clear today as we start to pivot and focus on glory. Peter says that this indescribable joy that we have is filled, like a cup, filled with glory. Now, glory, that's the same exact language that we saw just a few seconds ago in Luke 2. Glory. When the shepherds and angels encountered each other, and when the angels gave them the message, the good news of great joy, there was worship going on. The angels worshiped first, and then the shepherds. And so the question we've got here is, when we hear this phrase, joy filled with glory, the question we, we would have to ask, the question that I ask is, what is this glory? Like, what is it? What is he describing here? And how do we fill our joy with this glory? Like, what is the, what is the experience that he's de- depicting here? It's a very strange way to describe this. And what makes it more intriguing is when we drop down to verse 9, got it in your Bibles, just drop down real quick. He says that this experience of joy, inexpressible joy, is obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. That's what this is. So to experience joy in God, Christian joy, joy in Jesus Christ, is what Peter describes here, the outcome of our faith. It is a foretasting of a future event that we just discussed that will be received by faith. Peter's talked about it throughout the entire uh, passage. Um, For example, in verse 5, he says that the outcome of our faith is 
a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in verse seven, he says that our faith will result after it's been tested by trials, it will be found to result in praise, glory, and honor in the, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in verse nine, he describes this as the salvation of our souls. So all of these different words are being used to describe the same event in the future, but somehow that reality, what's going to happen in the future when we see Jesus face to face, streams into our present. Because that's what he's saying here. When he says we rejoice with an inexpressible joy now that we are actually obtaining in this moment the outcome of our faith, we're obtaining a salvation for our souls. What he's saying is that when we experience this joy, we're not just experiencing joy that's in the future. That joy is flooding the present in that experience of Christ now. It's not, a, it's not just a future event, though it is most certainly a future event. It's not just that. It is something that can be experienced and tasted in the present. So what in the world does Peter mean by that? That's a weird way to describe experiencing joy in Christ. How do we get this joy? How do you and I, and this has really been the question we've got the entire series, how do we experience this joy? No matter where we are on the spectrum of our experience of enjoying Jesus, how do we get what Peter's describing here? And really to begin this answer, we need to ask the most basic question of all. What is it, when Peter says glory, filling our joy, what is that glory? What does glory mean? What does it mean for us to see that word in the Bible? The Greek word being used here is doxa. And doxa, when it was originally conceived, meant to something seems to be this way or it's accepted or it's received. It's a believing of something. But in the centuries that were leading up to the advent of Christ, the word took on some new meaning, especially in Hebrew circles. And it became the equivalent of the Hebrew word kavod, if you've heard us talk about this before, kavod literally means heavy, weighty, and it is the word that is used in the Old Testament to describe the glory of God. It is the glory of God. It is the word for glory. So both kavod and doxa in our Bibles mean almost always glory. And it generally is referring to the glory of one being in particular, God. And so when we think about the word glory, when it shows up in the scriptures, it is the display in the picture, in the presentation of God's worth, beauty, radiance, power. It's when he shows himself publicly. He's not invisible anymore. He breaks into our world in such a way that we see his glory. And when the glory of God is communicated in scriptures when we see events where it's displayed, it's this radiant display of his power and his worth and his beauty. It's like God's infinite godness is being shown. And what we saw in Luke 2 was that. If you remember, the angel appears to the shepherds and it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. It's the glory of God that they're seeing. And this was a frightening experience for them. I mean, it says, 
When the shepherds saw this glory, literally, they were filled with great fear. Not mild fear, great fear. This was a terrifying experience to be suddenly overwhelmed and swept up in the glory of the Lord. In the Old Testament, we see God constantly relenting of showing his glory. In fact, in Exodus 33, I don't know if you remember the scene, God tells Moses straight up, no man can see my face and live. And he has to hide him in a cleft in the mountain so that he isn't consumed by God's godness, God's glory, the display of God's great power. And the reason why is because our broken, sinful frames cannot endure the reality of his glory. We just cannot. Um, And the reason why no man can see God's face is because of our sin. Our sin makes us enemies of God's glory, makes us adversaries to God's glory. And the reason humanity, and we have to get to understand glory, we have to understand why we can't be near it or experience it in the way that we were intended to in the beginning. The reason we're enemies is because of how human beings naturally treat the glory of God, how they naturally treat it. Sin at its essence, if we were to break sin all the way down to the bottom lowest common denominator, is to honor or cherish or love something more than God. It's to delight in something, have a greater intensity of affection for something more than God. That's the essence of sin. And page after page after page in this book, we see God holding out the reality that there is a God who exists and that he is actually completely and totally worthy of our adoration, our affection, our love, our allegiance. He deserves, intrinsically, he deserves to be praised and glorified. And that's just God's word. Like that's, that's what we have through divine revelation. In the natural world, we see the same story over and over again. All of creation tells us the same thing whether it's the stars in the sky or the taste of spaghetti. Timothy made spaghetti for his family on Christmas. Or if it's the embrace, like the warm embrace of a friend who you haven't seen in a long time. All of those things are designed to serve the same purpose as the scriptures, ultimately. And that is that the one who made all of those things, the stars, the taste of spaghetti, the, 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 the feeling of joy when we're near people we love, all of those things, that one person, that one being should be honored, praised, and glorified. That's clear from nature. It's clear from scripture. Indeed, it is commanded almost everywhere in this book to rejoice and glorify God. But there's a tension, and you all know this tension. You all feel it inside of you. There's a tension in human beings to desire and pursue joy. And generally speaking, to do that in the world, in creation, with things that he's made. We live lives, human beings in general, live lives in pursuit of happiness. We want to be happy. We want to be glad. We may not even think about it in those terms, but we're always doing things so that we're more comfortable, more happy, more glad, experiencing joy. We're doing things. This is why the entertainment industry exists. This is why, this is, 
This is why we pursue all the things we pursue. There's a desire for us to be glad, to be happy. Whether it's in the things we buy or the people we know or the people we love, we want to be happy. We're governed by this pursuit, whether we consciously recognize it or not. All of us are hardwired to pursue joy. But the main problem with the world is that we fail at a profound level to see the significance of God's glory in that pursuit of joy. To the natural heart, the objective demand by reality and by God himself for us to glorify, praise, worship an infinitely worthy God, that objective demand feels like a threat to our joy. It's going to take away time from this or that or something else that we would rather be doing. So that glory is a threat to us. That's a problem to us. Human beings, naturally speaking, see God's glory as an impediment and barrier to personal joy. And we reject it. And what happens is God's glory goes from being the treasure that it should be to being the greatest peril we could possibly imagine. It becomes a violently deadly thing. And this is what we see throughout the Old, the Old Testament. I mean, entire nations are laid to waste by the glory of God. So the fear that we see in, in Luke 2 is not a shocking thing. That the, that, the, that the shepherds are like, what's going on right now? and are terrified is not shocking at all. Um, but what this scene that we see between the angel and the shepherds tells us is that there's more to the equation than just that, than just their fear. What it tells us is that real joy, true lasting joy in the heart of a human isn't at odds with God's glory, but in fact is deeply connected to the glory of God. In fact, Human joy finds its fullness in God's glory. The demand um, on the human to acknowledge and praise and worship a, a glorious God isn't an enemy to joy, but it is in fact the reason we have a desire to pursue joy in the first place. It's the whole reason we actually want to have joy. In other words, our pursuit of joy in this life is not wrong. It's not sinful. It's not, act, it's not broken. It's actually a design in God's creation. The question we need to ask is, what is the joy that we pursue? Like, what are we pursuing as our highest treasure? And the God of Scripture holds out his infinite worth, his infinite beauty displayed in his glory so that our joy would be in him so that he would have our joy. Joy in the heart of a human is like a throne. It's like a throne sitting in your heart. Just imagine this for a second. That throne is your ultimate joy. Whatever you treasure most, whatever you, if I were to take it away from you, you would be undone. And whatever we place in that throne is the object, it's the focus of our joy. It can be good things. You can put good things in that, things that are innocent in that throne. You can put bad things in that throne. But 
if it's not God himself, if it's not God, we are saying God has that throne, God has that place in my heart, he is the center of my affections, then it is ultimately broken and sinful. Because the joy that's in 1 Peter is the joy that we were made for. God's glory was always meant to be on that throne. And Peter describes the, the, the seating of God's glory on that throne of joy as the salvation of our souls. That's how he describes it in verse 8. He says, when you experience that joy, you're experiencing salvation. You're experiencing your soul's salvation. So what this means is that salvation in, in Peter's mind isn't just an event that happens in the future. It is that. He says it is. But it's not just that. It is something that we experience right now, especially as we press deeper and deeper into this joy. And this is huge because it tells us that the main difference between a Christian who trusts in Jesus and loves Jesus and a non-Christian who doesn't isn't mainly a series of beliefs or confessions or statements as critical as they are. Those are critical. Statements of faith are critical. But it isn't mainly that. At its fundamental level, the main difference is a question, very simply, where do you find your joy? Where do you find your ultimate joy? Because Peter is saying that where you find your ultimate joy, if it's in God, it looks like you obtaining the outcome of your faith. It looks like your salvation. Salvation for a human being is enjoyment of God. In its essence, Peter describes this salvation as an inexpressible joy in the soul. That is an experience that is kind of like foretasting heaven. Kind of like a foreshadowing of, of us being with God forever, which Psalm 1611 describes as full and unending joy. Forever. I mean, joy forever that will never end. That is always getting more and more joyful every millisecond. Except Peter says that shockingly, that joy is not just something you have to look forward to. There is a way in which you can experience something of that joy now. Inexpressible joy right now. Which brings us back to Christmas. Back to the shepherds and the angels in the field and you remember when the angels first arrived, the shepherds were terrified. They were filled with great fear. And that was not a wrong response to the glory of God. They had a right to be afraid. However, the angel tells them his first words, fear not. Fear not. And the reason he can say that to them isn't because he's changing God's script from the Old Testament. The reason he can say that is because something massive has changed that will anchor human joy and the pursuit of human joy to the glory of God for all eternity. No longer will we be shifting through the night trying to figure out joy in this broken world that has nothing that can satisfy us. There is good news of great joy. And that's 
that something is the birth of Jesus Christ. It is that when Christ entered the world, what he would accomplish as our Savior through his death and through his resurrection, through his life of perfect righteousness, what he would accomplish would create for us an eternal joy in God. We would have an experience that that we could never experience apart from this. The gospel brings it into existence. And the only way for us to be able to savor and enjoy God's glory is for Jesus to be born, enter the world, and for him to display it, not only in his life, but in what he did on the cross. Listen now, John, the gospel of John, in verse 14 and 18 of chapter 1, how he describes the infiltration of God in the, in the form of Christ into this world, God's glory into this world through Jesus. Verse 14, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh. That's Jesus. God becomes incarnate and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of Jesus, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the glory we see when we see Jesus is God's glory. It is the glory from the Father. And then verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. No humans have ever seen God because of the reason we talked about earlier. However, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That only God is the Word. It is Christ Jesus manifested in the flesh to show us the glory of God in a way that we would otherwise have never seen any joy in God's glory. What John is saying here is that we can, in Jesus Christ, we can clearly see the beauty, the worth, the the glory of God, not only in who Jesus is intrinsically, but in what he's going to do on that cross, what he does through the gospel. So in Christ, God displays not only his glory in the beauty and worth of Jesus living rightly, but in our pursuing of the forgiveness of our sins by dying in our place. This is the greatest act of God in all of human history. It shines his glory at the height and absolute brightness that you can possibly conceive of. It's the greatest event is the cross because in that event, he secures our eternal joy in that same glory. Peter's telling us that to experience salvation as a human being is, it feels like and it tastes like inexpressible joy in God. That's what salvation feels like. And this is exactly what, why the cross had to happen. Without the cross, there isn't anything like that. What this means though, and I want to turn to something that's a little bit harder for us to get and grapple with. What this means is that to make anything else your joy in this world, your ultimate joy, isn't just making something else that can never satisfy you your joy. It isn't just that. To make it your ultimate joy, you are embracing your own destruction. If salvation is the experience of joy in God, then to refuse 
joy in God and to embrace something else is not to experience salvation, it's to experience destruction. Don't get me wrong, we can and should have great joy in the things that God has blessed us in, in, uh, with in this world. This is not saying that we shouldn't enjoy other things. We should enjoy everything that God's blessed us with. But if this inexpressible joy in God is our salvation, then what it means that ultimate joy in anything else, ultimate joy, putting that thing in the, the throne of joy in our hearts would destroy us. In fact, it would be an eternal destruction. I think we, when we think about hell, we can downplay, I mean, hell as a concept, we can downplay the severity of what is being discussed when the Bible talks about hell by simply making it a place you go to if you don't believe X, Y, and Z. As true as that is, we downplay the severity though because the way that scripture describes hell is much worse than that. Hell is the embodiment of a life that pursues ultimate joy in anything but God. That's what it is. It's not just refusing to bow a knee. It is refusing to embrace true and lasting joy. To deny God his glory in pursuit of anything else is the abolition in the heart of a human being of any real kind of joy. And so the quest for joy in life is not a game. It's not a trivial thing. It's not, it's not a trivial thing that we are designed to pursue joy and it's not a trivial thing that God should be our ultimate joy. It is a forever kind of thing. It will matter forever. And let me just tell you, there is a joy that exists in this universe that will never run out. It will never fail you. It will always satisfy you. And that joy is found only in Jesus Christ, only in him. It's found in embracing his glory, his worth as our greatest treasure. So please listen to me as we close this series. Like the whole reason we've had this series, and I know it's focused on Christmas, um, but the whole reason we've had this series is so that we would know that there's nothing that can satisfy us like Jesus. There's just nothing in this world that can satisfy you like Jesus. And there's nothing that is greater and more beautiful than him. And what this means is that the gospel becomes this astonishing situation where the greatest beauty, the greatest glory, the greatest worth in the universe is willing to lay that down so that you and I can, can have him, can participate in that joy, enjoy him. And so without the cross, what the angel told the shepherds is meaningless. The cross had to happen. The only way that we could experience unending joy is for a Savior to enter into this world and to do what he did on that cross. In a few moments, we're going to be celebrating communion, which is the Lord's Supper. And we're going to be memorializing that event, that reality, what the manger was pointed to, the cross. And what I want to do is I want to read a, a quote from a C.S. Lewis essay that you may have heard before. The essay is called The Weight of Glory. And I want to read this quote. We had a study a few months ago. It's a few months ago, right, Manny? I can't remember. Like October. Um, and we went through like four or five weeks. We went through 2 Corinthians, uh, a few chapters in there, and we looked at this reality. Um, and 
before we go into the next year, I just want our whole church to be captivated by this pursuit of joy in God because this is, this is critically important, so important. Um, the delta between joy in God and joy in anything else in this world is an infinite divide. An infinite divide. And it lasts forever. We cannot afford to be inundated with weak, fleeting, failing joys when the eternal joy of Christ Jesus is offered to us through the gospel. We need to embrace it. It would be the greatest of all tragedies not to. So I'm going to read this quote from Lewis, and I want you to contemplate it as we celebrate communion. Lewis says, in Way to Glory, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are, human beings are, half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And my prayer today, and really through this entire season, is that would not be us. That we would never be far too easily pleased. That our lives, our entire beings, our families would be committed, dedicated to pursuing the greatest joy in the universe, which is God. The purpose of Christmas, the purpose of Christmas is to get us to imagine what it would be like to be offered a holiday at the sea. That's why Christmas exists. For us to know that there is unblushing, staggering, Lewis says, promises that are offered to us through the gospel. And at the center of all of those promises, all of those rewards that Lewis talks about is the main thing, the glory of God. We get Jesus in the end. The very reality of God being with us is experienced and tasted in a way that we can't even imagine and conceive. And that's our, that's our pursuit. That's our passion as a church is to pursue joy in God because that's the only place that you can find it full and lasting. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And we are grateful that according to your great mercy, you caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Father God, it is kept in heaven for us. And you are guarding us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Father God, help us rejoice in this. Help us rejoice in this. Even though for now, for a little while, if necessary, we have to be grieved by various trials, Father God, to show that the tested genuineness of our faith, which is 
more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire and perishes, that that faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Father God. Even though we can't see your son, we love him. We do. Even though we, we've never seen him before with our physical eyes, we believe in him. And we rejoice, Father God. And if we have trouble rejoicing, get our hearts to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled to the brim with your glory that we might in all of that experience, Father God, be obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. This is our plea, Father God. This is my, my prayer for me and for my friends here, for this church, that we would pursue the greatest glory in the universe, yours, and that that would be our highest joy and our greatest treasure, Father God. Make that true about this next coming year. In the name of Christ, amen.